Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me for another episode of School Nutrition Dietitian. Today, I have Sean Walchef on the show. I'm really excited to have him on. It's so nice to connect with someone who is thriving in the restaurant business for best practices. In school nutrition, it really makes sense to treat our operations like small businesses, like small restaurants within the school system. This episode is packed with useful information. Sean talks to us about how we watch our bottom line, how we market our programs, how we can connect with the community and build community around the program and our missions. Sean has done a lot of fascinating work, taken on a lot of very ambitious impressive projects from the Spring Valley Tailgate and Barbecue Festival to co-hosting the Behind the Smoke Barbecue War Stories podcast and being the owner and operator of Cali Comfort Barbecue. We are very fortunate to have such a knowledgeable guest on today. And beyond just being knowledgeable, you can tell that Sean is a people lover, a lover of food and community. And that is something that really resonates with me. And I'm sure with all of you being in school nutrition, we tend to be service oriented people who want to lift other people up through what we choose to do with our professional lives. And that's one of the many reasons why Sean is a perfect fit for the show today. And you're going to get so much out of this. All right, let's jump right in. School nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus time to handle business breakfast. You don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the school nutrition dietitian. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've been interviewing other people who work in school nutrition, but I really wanted to get in touch with experts from other areas so we can bring in outside knowledge that will make us stronger. So one of the obvious choices was to look at people who are doing big things and the restaurant business. And you really stood out to me because of your strong social media presence. And I see you've done a lot of traditional traditional media that I was able to find online as well. And I don't see as many people having kind of a, a national um, representation of themselves online and having a brick and mortar business. So what made you decide that you wanted to go out beyond just being known in your own community? You know, that's a great question. We opened um, our restaurant in 2008, so at the height of the economic crash, and we opened in a part of San Diego that not many people thought there should be a restaurant. We're kind of off the beaten path. It's a rural uh, area that has commercial, it has residential. It's basically a place where you'd never expect to find us. But what we knew is that it was an amazing village and that there was amazing people that lived in the community and they were underserved. So we knew that if we could bring something that made people, families excited, we could bring out quality food. We could have, you know, a quality bar and sports entertainment atmosphere that we could do something that nobody else was doing in the area. And, you know, 2008 was, 
you know, the iPhone came out in 2007. So when you're talking digital and you're talking about the world that we live in now in 2019, there's a huge leap that's happened. And when we opened, I mean, conventional wisdom in real estate for opening a restaurant is you open for location, location, location. And our location would have met none of those requirements. But what we found was nobody was going to market the restaurant for us. Nobody was going to come and give us free publicity. No newspaper writer was going to come and do an article. If we wanted people to come in the doors, if we wanted to pay our bills, if we wanted to continue to meet our payroll in order to pay our, our food vendors, we knew that we had to have a successful business and we had to have people coming in. In order to do that, we started doing things online like, you know, starting a Facebook page. You know, I, I thought it was a joke to have a Facebook page. I teased my business partner, who was my one of my best friends from college, Corey Robinson at the time. You know, I, I thought he was just on there to, to find girls. And, <laughs> you know, we joke about it now, but when we were struggling and when we couldn't get people to come in, we realized how important brand was. And we wanted mm -hmm. something that we were excited to share, to wear on our clothes, to wear as hats. That was our story. That was our message. This is what, you know, Cali Comfort, this is who we are and this is what we represent. So I went on Facebook and back then it was so basic. You just basically nice. set up a page, but it allowed us to share specials. It allowed us to talk about things that were happening at the local school, at the local elementary school, you know, at the local church, something that might have happened, you know, with the fire department, if someone was doing a fundraiser, it allowed us to become, you know, kind of the, the, the village online voice piece which was missing in our community. And I think just the willingness to do that and learn something that wasn't, you know, my background, I was a sociologist. I, I went to school for business, but realized that I, I wasn't really excited about the business classes they were teaching. I was much more interested in sociology. And of course, I fought my grandfather tooth and nail because he was a medical doctor and he wanted me to be an attorney. But for me, it's always been about the people and why do we do what we do? And knowing that in the restaurant business, in order to succeed, you have to make people feel welcome and they have to feel like they're part of the family. You know, and when you think of all the greatest restaurants that you go to, you know you go there because they make you feel good or they make your mother feel good or that's the place where, you know, your aunt loves to go because every birthday that's where she goes. Why do they go there? It's, it might not even be because they have the best food. Right. You know, it might not even be because the best service, but it might be because they know that they know where to get parking. They know that, you know, there's a changing station for their child. They know that there's a, a meal that it's not going to fail. It's always going to be good. They know that there's not going to be any issues with the service. Those are certain things that we all take for granted, but that's what essentially makes up the essence of hospitality. We're very fortunate that when we opened in 2008, we had 18 employees. We probably did 400,000 in revenue the first year. After 10 years, we've grown to over... 65 employees and we had 3.3 million in sales last year. We're doing things that are getting noticed nationwide um, and worldwide because of podcasting, mm. because of digital marketing, because of digital media. Um, and I applaud you for bringing this to school nutrition. You know, I'm, I'm a new, new father. My wife and I, we have a two-year-old son and we have a three-month-old daughter. And recently we started looking into daycare and when we go to look for daycare, we go to Google, we search daycares in our community, we start looking online and 
sure enough, Yelp comes up with a list and, you know, Yelp is primarily used for restaurants, but those businesses that are digitally savvy understand that if they're already there looking for something, well, we better have a presence on Yelp. And sure enough, the daycares that we chose to look at had four and a half stars or five stars on Yelp. And we contacted those daycares. We went to their website. Their website was easy. It was mobile friendly. It allowed us to book a a tour. They had a great school lunch program, which was something that was very important for us. And that's the world we live in. And if people aren't, if if people don't realize that that's what's happening, um, they're going to end up like Toys R Us and they're going to end up like Blockbuster. In food service, especially, there's so many things that we do amazing that need to get celebrated more. Mm-hmm. And that's the power of social media. It allows you to celebrate that because maybe you have the best food in the school district, or maybe you have, you know, the best program where people, where the kids are excited to come to the cafeteria. I mean, isn't that what, what it's all about? Like you shouldn't exactly. you want to go and, and eat, eat your meal. Yeah, we really want, like you said, I mean, you just said so much, you captured really what makes up a good experience when you go out to eat is the atmosphere. And that's all about how that business creates community with you, whether you're there or not there. These days, typically people need to reach you even when you're not in their establishment for you to really feel connected. Like you made your business a hub in the community to bring other organizations together. That's so smart. That's absolutely something we can attempt to apply as well, because that is really the saving grace. You can have a bad, not a bad experience with a meal, but you can have like an off experience. Like you said, you don't have to be serving the best food in the world, but the experience needs to be consistent. That's really something people are looking for when they dine with you. And I love that you just explained to everybody that as a millennial parent, because sometimes it feels like we're not remembering this, millennials (laughs) are the parents of the kids that we serve right now. This is how a millennial parent researches where they want their child to be. Like you use the internet, you do research before you even go in the door. So you have a chance to start making your impression before you even make face-to-face contact with the parents. But you absolutely need to back that up with their in-person experience. I, I mean, that's literally, you know, we I had a podcast called Behind the Smoke and we did 100 episodes and it was more focused on business and exactly what we're talking about digital marketing. And I'm launching my own podcast now, the solo podcast where it's on digital hospitality. And that's exactly what you talked about. It's because, I mean, if you take it even a step further, my wife and I, we sold our condominium and we need a bigger house. We have two kids. So we're looking on Zillow and on Redfin. Those are two real estate apps. And we're trying to find which neighborhood in San Diego do we want to live in? And one of the number one factors for where we're looking is based off of the school district. Mm. So what is the elementary school score? What is the middle school score? What is the high school score? And I guarantee you at some point, they're going to get to the point where they're going to talk about the nutrition at each one of those schools. And once they do get to that point, that's the ratings. That's your Yelp rating system based off of why are people coming to that school district? They're coming to that school district because that school nutrition program, they're forward thinking and they're doing things that they understand what the needs are of the parents and what the needs are of the children of this generation, what we want. 
Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, you're so knowledgeable. So I imagine having such a clear brand identity didn't come to you right away. It sounds like you're absolutely clear on wanting to serve an underserved community, but I would think other people who were interested in opening a business, maybe their first assumption would be, well, these resources don't exist in this area because there's no market for it. How could you see that there was potential where other people did not see potential? In 2007, when, like you said, Facebook was still something that college kids were using, businesses weren't really seeing it as a tool either. I mean, that's, that's a great question. I think, you know, it goes to the heart of, you know, I, I was raised by my grandfather and he was an immigrant that was born in a Bulgarian village and he was born to be a farmer. You know, everyone in the village was a farmer and it was only because of a teacher who taught him how to read and his grandfather who taught him how to read and his love of learning and wanting more that allowed him to read every single book in that village that he was in and apply to medical school. He didn't get into medical school, but he had this endless need to want to learn more and to be curious, but not only to be curious, but also to follow that up. And when you do that, you start to find things in your community, in your business that can be improved on. And then you can start having conversations that aren't conversations that you have on an everyday basis where, oh, hi, how are you? How's this? How's this? It's, well, why aren't we doing this? You know, I just went to our website, like a new potential parent might, and I tried to click, you know, come visit the school, and it took me to a page that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Like, who is responsible for that, and how can we fix it? Like, these pictures on our website are outdated. Why don't we have pictures of all of our amazing new staff smiling and serving the kids in lunch line and all the cool things that we've been working so hard to implement, there's always an excuse. We don't have a professional photographer. We don't have, there's a, those excuses don't exist anymore. One of my best friends, he owns a tech company. And when we started the restaurant, he helped transition our business over to a WordPress platform, which allows someone who doesn't know anything about computers like me to go in and essentially publish our own website. Mm -hmm. So I could upload a picture, I could change the text. What he told me, which was so empowering at the time, was that, you know, in this digital age, if people aren't building software platforms, apps that are easy to use, they're not going to stay in business. So you need to get over your fear mm -hmm. and just learn how to do it. And if you don't know how to do it, Google how to do it. And, you know, it was something that was very powerful for me at the time because you know, I was getting frustrated that our website wasn't the way that I wanted it. There was an upcoming boxing fight that I wanted to put on our website so that when people were searching Pacquiao, Mayweather, San Diego, we would be one of the top search results that needs to be on our website early on, because that's something that we're showing. We're paying a lot of money to show um, and we want people to come. But because I couldn't do that, you know, I reached out to him and he did that, you know, and you creating this podcast, having conversations like this, you're sharing knowledge with anyone who's listening to this podcast. You don't listen to podcasts if you don't want to learn. So that's an incredible start. You know, I, I listen, I devour podcasts. I don't think I drive and listen to music anymore. All I listen to is, you know, podcasts about things that I'm passionate about and things that I, I want to improve in my life because it makes me want to read more. I mean, that's the craziest thing is since I started podcasting, I started reading more than I've ever read in my entire life. 
It's funny. Yeah, it's kind of had that effect on me too. I've still, I've been resisting it because I've gotten to be so visually oriented. I used to read Mm -hmm. so much as a kid. Before we started the interview, we realized we were basically in the same age bracket. I remember as a child, I was obsessed with reading, but as the internet grew, I'm like, oh, visual media is where it's at. But in the early 80s, there were a lot of different forms of educational tools that you just listened to. So this all podcasting just feels so natural because I'm used to this, this medium, even though it being on demand is a new thing. This is really kind of an old way of people teaching each other. So you made a good point that we all need to get over our fear to start learning how to do new things. And maybe we won't be great at it in the beginning. But I think that's kind of a tricky thing for adults because we're so afraid of being wrong. And a lot of us have not built up any resilience. Maybe we don't have any grit. How do you develop that? Is that something you were raised with as well? Or do you have any tips for us? Well, I mean, I definitely raised with it because, you know, my Bulgarian grandfather was told no in just about everything he did in life. And his perseverance and persistence always prevailed because he, whether they told him he couldn't do real estate because he was a medical doctor, he read books and he learned how to do real estate. And, uh, you know, for me, that was something that was always an inspiration early on. But I mean, being, being an entrepreneur, we, we fail every day. I mean, you learn how to understand that nothing is really as bad as we make it out to be. We, as, as humans, we, we don't want to look stupid, you know, especially we don't want to look dumb in front of kids either because the kids get it so much easier than we do. And then, and they get frustrated because they don't know how to explain it, but that's also not good for them. They need to learn how to teach also. You really don't know how to do something until you teach it to someone else, right? That's true. You know, so for me, my best advice would be if there's something that you've been thinking about, whether it's starting a Twitter account or starting a YouTube channel or starting an Instagram page, do it right now. Like stop the podcast and then do it. And then research, how do I, you know, post better posts on Instagram? You know, how do I build a better YouTube channel? And then just start reading, start listening, whatever, however you learn, do it. And then start asking questions. You know, there's so many people that are willing to, I mean, we opened a restaurant in San Diego. I'm, I'm, I moved here when I was six months old. The last person that should be as loud as we are on the internet about slow smoking barbecue is someone from San Diego. <laughs> But I found an expert. You know, I found somebody, Gene Goykachea, who was, he was my expert. He was a pit master. He had spent 30 years in professional barbecue, cooking in Kansas City Barbecue Society contests, organizing contests. And he became our mentor. And we developed a friendship. And he said, you know, if you want to learn how to incorporate barbecue into your restaurant, um, we can do it. And I said, absolutely. You know, and we went from doing a little bit of barbecue to calling ourselves a barbecue restaurant. Uh, We chose to do that because we wanted to be different. You can't be everything to everybody. And we knew that cooking slow smoke barbecue, cooking brisket, cooking pork, we're putting pork butts on at 9 p.m. tonight. We're going to put briskets on at about 8. They're going to slow smoke in our old hickory overnight. They're going to get pulled in the morning by the barbecue prep. All those things, that's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time and a lot of expertise. And we were able to find a way to make a system and to create an operation, to create PARs, to figure out a way to cook the freshest barbecue every single day. And that's become our business model because we know how difficult it is. And we know that once you eat it, you can't compare it. 
Yeah, that's huge. How did you initiate that relationship with him? Did you kind of already see him as a leader and that specialty or you sought him out or how did that happen? When we opened, one of our goals was always to give back to the community and to do as much fundraising as we possibly could do, whether it was for local school or church or charity. And something that's always, that always meant something to me and my business partner at the time was sports, youth sports. Um, We learned so much from our coaches, from winning, from losing, from making friends on and off the field. But we realized that a lot of kids don't have the money to play in sports um, the way that we did. So we'd get local Pop Warner teams, local little league teams that would come and say, you know, can we do this fundraiser? Sure. We started doing so many fundraisers that we said, why don't we do one fundraiser and make it a huge community event and invite all the different sports and all the different coaches and have them involved. So we came up with ideas and the idea that people were most excited about was doing an amateur barbecue contest. Okay, great. Well, now what? I don't know. (laughs) Well, what do we do? So we needed to contact somebody that knew how to put on an amateur contest. And I contacted Kansas City Barbecue Society, which is the sanctioning body for professional barbecue. Um, they had put on a couple contests here in San Diego and said, hey, you know, we're trying to put on a charity event for our community and we would like to talk to somebody that might know how to organize a contest. And I called three people and the one person that called me back was Gene. He not only called me back, but he ended up coming and spending time in a restaurant and answering every crazy question that I had. But had I not made that call, you know, who knows? We might not even be open today. I might be doing something different. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. And now that event is one of the biggest barbecue events on the West Coast. Is that right? It's going to be our 10th annual event yeah, coming up on October 27th. So nobody's crazy enough to put the amount of time and effort it takes to put on an amateur event that doesn't make any money. But we do it with local businesses like Valley Farm Market. Derek Marceau, he was our initial sponsor. I went to the local butcher right down the street and said, would you sponsor this event? We've been able to build this incredible community thing where everybody gives of themselves and of them business in their business. And we create an opportunity for people that love barbecue that aren't ready to step up to professional barbecue contests. They can cook here, learn what the process is, learn how to turn in on time and then have an opportunity to raise money for a bunch of uh, local charities. Okay, that's awesome. So even though there's no money earned there, would you say you can tell a difference in how participating in that affects your business? Is there a clear return on investment or you can just see that it makes the community kind of revolve around your organization a little bit more? So the the biggest thing that happens with business and marketing and ROI is that people want to know, well, what's you know, if I'm, if I'm going to sponsor, what's my return on my investment? And the thing that I can say is if you don't participate, if you don't get involved, what I can guarantee is that you'll never have the richness and of experience and opportunity that we've been given. Mm. There's definitely no monetary value that means anything to me as opposed to the relationships that we've created the things that we've been able to accomplish in a place that people said could never be accomplished in a place where we go to the national barbecue association and, you know, they're giving us an award for the best barbecue podcast and the entire industry. 
and they're talking about our amateur barbecue event and our professional event. And we're interviewing people that are much more well-known in barbecue than we are, but we're interviewing them as peers and we have that level of respect with them. And it's something that, you know, I'm so grateful for because it allowed us to do so many other things and allowed us to learn more. I mean, until you put on an event requires you to talk to every single department. So you have to figure out operations, you have to figure out permits, you have to figure out liability, you have to figure out marketing, you have to figure out logistics, you have to figure out so many different things. And to grow the event, you need to get the word out. It requires you to be outside of your comfort zone, to ask for help, to find other experts. And because you do that, it allows not only you to grow, but you can't grow without a team. And the team that Derek and I have had and continue to have, I mean, it, nothing makes me more proud than to watch them operate because I can step back and get out of their way and know that I don't have to micromanage it. And if I do micromanage it, it's actually going to come out worse than if I let them do their job. Now, are some of these people your regular team members that you work with at the restaurant or it's a different group of people? Both. So we've had full-time staff that will cross-train um, to do catering and events. And then we have um, staff that are specifically, whether they volunteer their time or whether they're paid separately, they come in and help just for those uh, our Spring Valley Barbecue Festival and then the Turf and Surf Barbecue Championship that we host up at the Del Mar Races. Okay. So, How many months of planning does it usually take? How much should it take? It should take all year long, but okay. we have to run the restaurant and, and do the podcast and everything else. And thankfully, since we've you know, been doing it for 10 years and then doing the other event for four years. We're trying not to reinvent the wheel. So at each year, we're just building on what we did well the year before and improving on, you know, the weaknesses to make it better. So, right. you know, typically about six months of planning, but really heavy, okay. heavy planning happens the last three to two months. Okay. So you have a workforce that's so engaged, they're willing to put in that extra time. I know a lot of times there's a lot of turnover in entry-level food service positions. How have you built up a stable team where you have people who would be interested in cross-training? I mean, I think that goes back to the brand and the vision and what we're trying to do and create. If we weren't trying to do something special and if we didn't care about every detail, not only within the four walls of our restaurant, but also the food quality, the story that we're trying to tell, the community involvement, the digital footprint that we're leaving, we wouldn't get the kind of candidates that we get. People, they apply online to work at the restaurant. So they'll go through an online application, which is something that we added so that we can be you know, relevant in this day and age and also more organized. We're trying to be paperless. We haven't gotten there yet. We're trying to be cashless. I haven't gotten there yet, but these are all goals. But when they apply online, then our job is to respond to them and thank them for applying, but they also have to follow directions. Um, if they can't follow the directions that we ask online, then they don't get invited to the open interview. We'll do an open interview once a month for all positions and when people come in, we want them to interview with everybody else because in food service, what I tell them is whether you're working in the front of the house, the back of the house, this is one house. This is the heart of the house. We all have to pay attention to how we treat people. And if we don't treat our team members well, 
we're certainly not going to take care of the guests. So we ask all kinds of questions that uh, are tailored to each specific candidate. And we see not just how the candidate responds, but how they listen when it's not their turn. It really is an art hiring the right people. So is this something that you feel like you guys had a good handle on from the start? Or did you learn a lot of lessons along the way? And are there any resources you can point us to? We have learned a lot of expensive lessons with hiring the wrong people, keeping the wrong people on for too long. One of my favorite podcasts that I listen to is Entree Leadership. It's a Dave Ramsey podcast, but they have a lot of hiring tips. Patrick Lencioni, he wrote a book called Humble, Hungry, Smart. That's one of the basis of how we hire. It's because you always want to hire for those three key principles. Because the skill, anybody can learn the skills. You know, anyone can be a pit master. People get so intimidated. Anyone can be a chef. People get so intimidated by these titles. And the titles really don't mean anything. Are you willing? Are you eager to learn? Are you eager to put yourself in a position that you might not know? But are, are you the person that we can count on? And do you come with a positive attitude? If you come with a positive attitude, you can, you can be an owner in the company for all I care. And I want you to be. And that's what we tell every single person. It doesn't matter if you start as a dishwasher or if you start as a hostess. Because we have managers that started in those same positions. Absolutely. I'm going to include those in the show notes. I'm sure a lot of people would like to beef up their ability to pick the right people who are really resonating with their mission as an organization. Because it definitely does change how motivated you are to come into work every day. If you believe that what you do makes a difference, it completely changes how you respond to situations or challenges during the day. I mean, to be honest with you, it, it starts at the top. You know, it starts with leadership. And if leadership isn't talking about the clear vision for the school, for the program, what you're trying to do to differentiate yourself, what you're trying to do to be unique, what you're trying to do to take care of the students, not just what comes out of your mouth, but what is digitally available to the students, to the parents, to anyone that might be you know, interested in learning more about your school. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. And this is kind of backing up a little bit. You mentioned that barbecue isn't really something people think about when they think West Coast. So what was your food culture like when you were a kid? What did you grow up eating? So my grandfather was is a Bulgarian. He, he passed away in 2008. But my grandmother, who they never married, but it was his longtime girlfriend. She essentially raised me as well. She was Japanese. So between a Bulgarian grandfather and a Japanese grandmother, I had a plethora of traditional Bulgarian dishes, as well as um, Japanese dishes. And, you know, growing up in the restaurant business, we had essentially an American breakfast restaurant. So we had a little bit of everything. You know, there was always something that had to do with a traditional taste, whether it was udon noodles or fried gyoza or sushi to, you know, if it was a yaknia, which is a chicken stew um, with vegetables and or a shopska salad, which is a farmer's, essentially a farmer's salad with, you know, the freshest tomatoes and the freshest cucumbers cut with a feta cheese, a Bulgarian feta cheese. Very simple, but something that was a, is a staple in the Bulgarian culture and the Bulgarian diet. Ah, oh, that sounds delicious. So was your interest in food there from childhood? 
you know, to be honest with you, I'm probably the the last person that should be talking about about food or or barbecue because I'm not the one that's actually preparing it. And I think that's something that's very important. It was a big fear of mine to go on local television and local radio to talk about, you know, our restaurant business because people would want to talk about the technical aspects of making barbecue and making food. I've always loved people and people fascinate me and why we do what we do and getting people together and growing up in restaurants and growing up in sports have always led me to be, well, I just want to be where the action is. I want to be where the energy is. And the energy was always at a full restaurant or a full bar or at someone watching a fight night or watching game, you know, watching a game together. And for me, it was, how do you create that environment? And you create that environment in, in restaurants with a lot of eclectic personalities, a lot of different backgrounds. And for me, that's something that's always been fascinating to me. And it turns out I was able to make a a career out of it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that is extremely interesting because I think a lot of people, it takes more than just one specialty to run any organization. And I do feel like sometimes those of us that don't specialize in the area that the organization seems to be all about, we do feel a little reticent about speaking on what we do because we're afraid of those technical questions. But you're right, it takes all kinds and we need diversity in every organization to really be strong. Like you can't run a restaurant with only chefs. That Correct. just wouldn't work. I mean, there's plenty of pit masters who will never open up a restaurant. They might make the most incredible brisket and the most incredible ribs and maybe they can compete in a contest. But some of them can't even compete in a contest because they don't know how to have a team member. You know, and like, that's the the thing about business is business requires so many different moving parts. And what I've found is that the more I focus on the things that I'm good at, uh, communicating, talking, marketing, doing things that people typically wouldn't do in the restaurant, you know, I'm I'm about as unconventional as it comes. When when you go to our website, you see that we podcast and we have barbecue events and we partner with the Chargers and we partner with the Aztecs. And why am I hearing so much about this? this restaurant, it's like, it's only because I'm, I'm all in on digital marketing and digital media Mm. because I know now is the time. I know now is the time that if you want to start a podcast, I mean, what you're doing for nutrition and for schools and for anyone that's interested in, in, in improving themselves, I can't applaud you anymore. And I was so excited to come on this podcast today because this is exactly, you know, this is how you give back. People hear something and they're, they're, they're called to change. Life is way too short. Like I said, we have a, have a son and a daughter, and trust me, every school that we pick, we want to make sure that their cafeteria, their food, their school, that they care. They care about my son. They care about my daughter, you know, and that they're getting good food. Right. Absolutely. I do think that is one of the most important things for us to clearly communicate to our parents is how much we do care. And I do think if you are not making that clear, like you said, on all levels with how you represent yourself digitally and how you connect to your customers in person, it's not going to come across. You really have to push that that is one of your values as an organization. People won't just happen to notice. You have to communicate it. It's 100%. You know, it's, it, it, it has to be a buy-in, you know, because as much as I want to talk about how great we are, if people come to our restaurant and I don't have great people taking care of them, it's all going to fall apart. They are the ones that are carrying the torch. 
So my job is to make sure that those people that are representing, when I'm out on the local TV and on radio and on podcasts and people have heard about us for two years and this is their first experience, if they have a bad experience, well, why did I do all that work? That mm-hmm. ROI is zero. It's negative, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Consistency is key. So since our programs in a lot of ways do function like small businesses, we need to stay out of the red. But sometimes I think because we don't all have a strong background in food service in an environment where you're really held to a standard for making sure you're profitable, we run into challenges sometimes. So what are some key issues that you address when you turn a failed breakfast business into a successful business? What are some of the issues that a lot of food service operations have? Well, I mean, it's definitely controlling your food cost. And that's something that we still struggle with to this day. You know, I early on knew that I didn't know everything about restaurants um, and that I needed to have mentors and resources around me that I could learn from that had done it before. I found restaurantowner.com, which is a website that I subscribe to, and they put out a monthly magazine as well. But they have forms, articles, all kinds of things for us to learn that the most successful restaurants, they operate with weekly profit and loss statements. And I knew that in order to get weekly profit and loss statements, we would have to do weekly inventory. And when you're running a restaurant, that's the last thing you want to do. Yearly inventory is scary to people. Monthly is even worse. But weekly sounds like that's just never going to happen. But then once you read that all these corporations have a higher profit margin because they do a weekly food inventory and they do a weekly menu engineering and they do weekly recipe counting and they get a weekly cost of what their food cost is and their beverage cost is and their labor cost is, then they're able to make a change for the next week as opposed to the next month. Mm. And that's the problem with monthly profit and loss statements. And the, and the even bigger problem is when people, when the owner or the administrator or whoever it might be is too afraid to share financials with people in the organization, because it's important that everybody understands that everything costs money and food. Every single penny matters. And that doesn't mean that you can't run an incredible program that puts out incredible food. It just means that you need to understand what you don't know and ask for help. If you know that you need the help, then Google it, get resources, bring experts. And so many experts would be willing, so many restaurant professionals would be willing to come because the National Restaurant Association has incredible leaders that have, they own multiple restaurants and they would be willing to come and talk to schools, especially in this day and age where they, where they have kids that are going to be in these schools. So don't be afraid to ask for help and create those partnerships with people who have experience running a profitable business Mm. and doing things exciting. Because I mean, at the end of the day, if you don't have a job where you are excited to go to, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And life is way too short. And you probably should do something else. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there are a lot of people, not especially in school nutrition, because I do find that a lot of people are really happy there. But there are people in every industry who haven't found 
their passion yet. And maybe they can just reframe how they're looking at their current position and find there actually is purpose there. They actually are fulfilled by some elements of the job. But there are a lot of people who haven't put in the work to finding out what they're really meant to be doing. And you're right. Life is really short to not be happy with what you do most of the time because most spend more time at work than we do any place else. So surely you should be going someplace you think is making some kind of a difference and where you feel like you're contributing something. 100%. Yeah, I can't imagine not having that. So we want to look at our data on a weekly basis if possible. So you can make changes right away instead of losing money all month. It it is possible. Okay. It is hard. It is difficult. But it is done. And it can be done. But you have to have... I knew that I couldn't do it by myself. But I was lucky to have a general manager who wanted it just, just as much as I did. And we hired a company that's specializing in in helping independent restaurant owners do exactly that. And they have a cloud-based system that allows us to essentially input all of our inventory and do that, do exactly that. So I have a mental block against it too. (laughs) Trust. It's the last thing people want to do. Yeah. No one gets into the restaurant business to count inventory. No one gets into the retail business to count inventory, but if you don't count inventory, that's where all the profit and loss goes. That's a great point. And absolutely. I think you nailed it when you said people are going to think that that's not even possible. And I said that with not, without even thinking. But, in, but, in, but instead of saying that's not possible, start thinking about, well, what if we were the first school in our village to do it? What if we were the first school in our city to do it? What if we were the first school in our state to do it? What if we were the first school in the nation to do it and we taught every other school how to do it? How cool would that be? Yeah. That would be cool. Yeah, that's an excellent reframe. Would you say that's the biggest issue that food service operations have? Because I know it's very common for restaurants to open and not make it. Is that mainly the problem is inventory control? It's one of the problems. I mean, there's so many moving parts to running a restaurant. I mean, you can have an unprofitable menu uh, that isn't costed correctly. You could have a terrible lease. Most of the times the reason restaurants fail is because they're underfunded. So they don't have enough operating capital and you don't realize how much money you need and how much backup money you need. And when that money runs out, where's the other money going to come? That, that's probably the biggest reason why restaurants fail. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is excellent. That really helps. Is there anything that you wish everybody understood who's working in nutrition now about what a difference it makes to new parents like yourself to know that when their kids are away from home, they'll be eating well. You know, I'm just, my wife, she's Bulgarian and her mother is the head cook at a kindergarten in, in a city um, in Bulgaria called Vratsa. And she's been head cook for 20 years. She cooks for about 150 kids. And, you know, they went from, a communist regime to a democratic regime. And there was a lot of changes to the school system, a lot of changes to how they got food and how things were prepared. And one of the things that they're trying to focus on now is how do they stay within a budget, but also still provide healthy um, and nutritious meals to, you know, to the kids. 
And, you know, I talked to her and let her know I was going to be on the podcast. She was just explaining that, you know, a lot of the things that she does is putting love into the recipe. You know, she's always following the recipe because if you don't follow the recipe, you can't maintain a food cost, but putting love into the recipe, but also love into her service. And, you know, and that's why people like sending their kids to that school. That's why the parents like coming and picking up their kids because they know that they got a nutritious meal. You know, and I, I bring up that example because it doesn't matter where you are in the world. We all trust people in our lives to take care of our children mm -hmm. and to take care of our children. One of the things that they do every single day and that they need to do is learn about nutrition and learn about what goes in their food and how it's going to impact their ability to have energy, whether it's going to help them you know, with brain functionality, whatever it might be. And it's just great to know that that conversation is happening through leaders like yourself, but that no matter where you are, no matter where you're listening to it, hospitality is always just something that is always, I'm going to always preach about because it's how, it's how you make someone feel. How are they going to remember you? And that's something that all the most successful places that you've ever been, it, it, it's happiness. People that are spreading happiness and they care about what they do, no matter what the circumstances are. But you have to have those tough conversations with the people that don't care. The people that don't care can ruin any organization, you know, and you have to have leaders that are willing to get rid of those people and even hire somebody that has zero skills. They have to catch up, but they have the right attitude. If they have right. the right attitude, then you'll have a winning team. But it's the people that don't care that think that, you know, the, the earth is flat, that things are never going to change and everything's bad. Those people, it makes it so much harder for great kids to do their job and to you know take care of kids. Have you had any success trying to coach someone who seemed to have a bad attitude, but maybe something else was going on and they turned into an asset? How do you know when it's time to call somebody? So we, we've tried to come up with a, a process where, you know, a manager will identify an, an employee who, who might not be following our, our culture standards that doesn't understand, you know, why we're doing what we're doing. And then we'll have a conversation either with my general manager or with myself. And I think at that conversation, it's more of understanding who they are and where they are in their lives and what do they really want, which is something that, you know, I wish I could do on a more frequent basis was check in with our staff because they have lives too. And there are things that sometimes we, we don't know is going on. Uh, it's one of the things you try to have, you know, an open door policy, but people don't like to complain because they feel like they're complaining. So they just, you know, try to bury it away. And hopefully if we're good enough, we can listen and, you know, help them, but also help them understand that anything we can do outside of work to help them, we will do. But when we are at work, you know, our job is to take care of the guests and take care of each other. If other staff members are concerned and we're concerned, you know, it's probably impossible for you to, to you to do your job and to be concerned about, you know, the mom that has three kids that haven't eaten yet, that they came here and they picked us and, you know, they have a limited budget, but they picked us to come and celebrate. And, you know, we have to put, you know, our best foot forward at all times. Uh, I've seen people turn around. I would say it, it, it's usually less than it's more, but it's worth it to know that, people can turn around and sometimes they become your biggest assets because you didn't give up on them. Right. But like I said, it's typically out of 10 cases, it'll be two people that'll turn it around and eight just need to go.
And that's right. my job as a leader to make that decision quick and early. It is because such an intense job to be on all the time. Like you said, you need to put your best foot forward. It doesn't really matter what's going on in your life. Of course it matters and we care, but it doesn't matter to the customer and you have to Mm -hmm. learn to be on. Is there anything you tell your staff about how to manage their moods when they're having an off day or how do you coach people to prioritize customer service when they're having a hard time? I mean, you never know what someone's dealing with until you walk in their shoes. And all we can do is operate off of the information that we're given, which is why we tell staff how important it is for them to over-communicate often and early. If you let us know ahead of time, then we can help get shifts covered. But when you come in and something has happened, if you need to go home, but you're not going to get punished for that. We would rather you go home and take care of yourself and whatever emergency is going on in your life. But at the end of, at the end of the day, the people that are here to take care of our guests, you know, we all have to help each other. And the only way to do that is to, you know, have depth of perspective. And sometimes it's hard, you know, it's hard for our generation. I'm fortunate because my grandfather raised me and he's taken me, you know, to Bulgaria and I've seen his village and I know the stories of his struggle and I know him trying to get into medical school and getting rejected from Bulgaria, the land that he loved, and having to learn German and having to go to Germany during World War II. There's bombs being dropped on him, and he's trying to learn German so that he can learn medicine. And then I think of my problem of not being able to, you know, make payroll or getting sued by somebody who, you know, didn't like something that we did. And it, it gives depth of perspective. You know, I will get through this. He got through it. We like to magnify our problems. You know, and one of the things my wife and I, we've had a very difficult time purchasing a home this summer, partly because I'm a restaurant owner and we don't fall into the conventional lending. And we've had to sell our condo, move to temporary house, and we're still trying to buy our house. And some of our friends are like, oh, you know, that's so terrible. And we tell each other, you know, we have two healthy kids. You know, we, we have the ability to possibly buy a house. It takes thinking like that and having people in your life that can put those things into perspective because, yeah, we do like to think the world is ending and we don't get the promotion that we thought we were deserved. Uh, Really, it's not. I mean, perspective is a huge, huge player in happiness overall. And I think you are right. There are a lot of us who maybe are a little too self-absorbed to understand what the human experience is like in general. And it is very fortunate to have a good relationship with a grandparent because they tend to hip you to so many things that you just, you haven't had a chance to learn. Most kids that I know that are close to their grandparents seem like they're wise beyond their years. And everybody takes that wisdom with them as they go along. Can you tell us a little bit about how you shared your grandfather's story with the world at large? Yeah, my grandfather, he, you know, like I said, he he lived this incredible life and he was so passionate about getting his life story down into a book. And, you know, when I was 20 years old, he started telling me about his dreams of, you know, having his book published. And he started working towards that dream. He started reading books about how to write your memoir. He started attending writer's conferences and I would go with him and 
as he started working on that process of sharing his story in the form of a book, him and I, our relationship changed because he was sharing things and sharing stories at a depth that he hadn't told me before because he cared about the details and he cared about really conveying what had actually happened. And I think that was something that was so powerful, not only for me and for him, but, you know, for our family, once the book was completed, because we were able to, I was able to find someone to translate it into Bulgarian and get it back into, into the village library that he had read all those books. And for me, it was something that just, it was so, it was so powerful and it was the greatest gift that I could have ever gotten from him because that's really what we have. You know, we have our family, we have our heritage, we have you know, the impact, the imprint that we put on this world. Very rarely do we take the time to ask our parents or our grandparents more about right. the stories because they always have the stories that you've always heard at Thanksgiving and at Christmas. And, you know, we brush them off because, oh, dad, I've heard that story. I, but if you think about it, well, what if you were a reporter or what if you had your dad on, a, on the podcast and you were asking him questions like he had the answers that you were always looking for? What if you asked him other questions and you understood the story in a different, what if you asked other people that were involved to get, you know, more perspective on what your dad was talking about? You might come up with the most incredible story that you're able to record. You could even get right. a video of it and then you could give that to your children or your grandchildren. And like, those are the gifts and those are the things. And that was something that my grandfather made me realize that, you know, I'll, I'll always be so grateful for because, I mean, that, that's his story and hearing other people's struggles is back to what you said is like, when you hear other people struggle, you realize you're not alone. Right. You know, I know that people opened up restaurants and failed. I read about it. I know that people have been sued, you know, multiple times running restaurants. And I, I read about it. I read about how do you figure out how to get, the local news to cover your restaurant. I mean, all those things. We live in a day and age where if my grandfather was born today and there was the internet, I mean, I can't even imagine. This guy went, he literally went and read every single book in the village. But yeah. now he has, he has unlimited access to podcasts, to YouTube, to every single book, every written word. I mean, that's the power. And that happens all over the world. Once you get the access to the internet, you're given the key of information. What do you want to do with that information? Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And it is absolutely a blessing to have had the opportunity to really dig deeper with those stories. Because I think sometimes it doesn't occur to you that you haven't heard all of the details. You're right. You hear information when you get together with your family, you take it for granted, and you figure you know about as much as you need to know. But to approach people in your life with that curiosity curiosity, I really think is a major factor in how happy you're going to be in life in general as well. And how much are you going to get out of experiences? All this information is available. It's at our fingertips, but how many people are curious enough to look for the information? I can't, I heard it on NPR somewhere, but they did an experiment where the internet was introduced to people living kind of in a remote area abroad and they wanted to see to small children what school age children would do with that information. And it was kind of in a more agricultural area. So these kids didn't go to school consistently because they had work to do at home to help their families. And not all of the kids knew how to read. They just wanted to see what is the difference between how someone may use that information in a country where it's always available versus where it's a novelty. 
These kids taught themselves how to read. They, it was just incredible. The approach because of curiosity basically was the fundamental difference. And is this novel, are you willing to use it in a way that benefits you? Or since it's ever present, is it just something you use to entertain yourself, not to really expand who you are and what you know? hundred percent. And you know, it's, I always take it a step further. I always say, stay curious and get involved. One of the people that I admire, actually probably two for digital marketing and podcasting is Gary Vaynerchuk and uh, Tim Ferriss. And, you know, they have these incredible platforms. They have so much content that they put out and they always have calls to action. And one of the things that they frequently say is they'll give a keynote speech and they'll tell people, hey, if you, you know, if you're curious about this, email me. Mm. you know, and put this in the subject line and how frequent, how infrequent people will do it. Literally so many people standing ovation. There's 500 people with amazing, incredible job. Like, Oh, we're going to do this today. We're going to start our YouTube page and then, okay, well, you know, if you want it, if you want all the tips, just email me at this and two people out of 500 will do the call to action. That is fascinating. Follow, follow the curiosity, right? Follow up. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on today. You've given us so much to think about. How can we find you online? Easy. If you go to Google and you Google Cali BBQ, chances are Sean Walchef will come up and Cali Comfort Barbecue and everything that we do. But the, the, the main website is CaliBBQ.media. So we're turning our barbecue restaurant into a media company and um, we're going to have podcasts and blogs and all kind of content. Um, to teach people how they can do the same thing. That is fascinating. I, I can't wait to see what else you guys end up doing. Thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to meeting you when you visit San Diego someday. Absolutely. All right. How good was that, you guys? I love that Sean called me out on my resistance to the idea of doing inventory any more often, but it really makes a lot of sense that that is an area where most operations hemorrhage money. Your inventory is money that has the potential to go bad, to grow legs and walk out the door if you're not making it clear that you know that you have it and you're tracking it. It is such a volatile thing that it really deserves extra attention. And it's a great way to protect your bottom line to give that additional attention to inventory. But the concept certainly is a little scary because nobody, like Sean explained, gets in the business of food service to do inventory. So there's resistance there. It's not the most exciting thing. It's not the easiest thing, but that's certainly an idea worth giving attention. If you end up doing inventory more frequently and see positive outcomes, please be sure to share that with the rest of us. If you didn't get a chance to take notes this episode, don't worry. I have done that for you. Sign up for the mailing list on the main page. That's schoolnutritiondietitian.com and I will get those right to you. And remember, the only fee for this show is that you share it with others whenever you hear something of benefit or of interest in an episode. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.